So nice to see you. Mm -hmm. Goodness. A wonderful feeling. Oh. <laughs> Can you hear it back there? Okay, good. Thank you. That's good. It's not on. It doesn't seem to be on. That's on. <laughs> so good to see you all. Um, today, I want to talk about, uh, and well, we have we're having our general meeting today, so we will be talking about what we've done during the past year. Could you turn this room down just a little bit because it's loud to me? I don't know how it is for you, but if it's loud to me, that means it's pretty loud. Today I want to talk about founding sanctuaries and joy and play and honoring our found, other founders, honoring various founders. That's what I want to talk about today. So when we honor our, our founders this afternoon, when we have our meeting, when we have our general meeting, and all of us are really part of the foundational generation for Zen in Texas, but we also have some special founders. Louise is one. We have people, and Tim is one, uh, people who've been really at the ground floor, and we're walking on them. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll appreciate them. And in Buddhism, it's one of the really important understandings is that the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, which are called the three treasures. So the Buddha, Dharma is the teachings and the way things work, and Sangha is the community of practitioners. Those three things are equally important. So the amazing example of a teacher like the Buddha, an awakened being with an awakened understanding and completely exemplary behavior, that's one part. And then the part about being able to teach about that, which is what the Buddha spent about 45 years doing, and what the rest of us keep trying to um, embody and teach, um, that's another part. And then the Sangha is an equally important part. So all of our behavior together and all of us interconnected with all of our Sanghas throughout the country especially the Southeast region of the United States <laughs> um, are, are this Sangha and the way we interconnect, the way we benefit from each other, the way we benefit each other is a treasure of, of the school is a treasure of Buddhism. And sometimes you may feel like a treasure and sometimes not. And sometimes you see other people as treasures and sometimes you see them as, um, they must be a treasure. <laughs> they must be a treasure. Can't see it right now, but I'm sure they're a treasure. <laughs> so this is part of our way. But part of our way is really fundamentally this thing called play. 
And the Buddha in the Lotus Sutra, which is a very important teaching in our school, everybody should read the Lotus Sutra. Everybody should read it. Uh, how often should we read the Lotus Sutra? A lot. A lot. <laughs> it's really beautiful. Um, and in it, the Buddha compared founding a sanctuary to the play of children playing in the sand. So founding a sanctuary was as simple as children sitting down in the sand and building a sand castle. Isn't that nice? And with the mind of, as later on Dogen Zenji would say, founding a sanctuary, you should have the mind of grass and stone. Or you should have them another way, another time he said, you should have the mind of trees to found a sanctuary. And so children build um, sand castles and Buddha says then they're kind of, they don't really care if the sand castles get washed away. I don't know. I wasn't that kind of child. <laughs> but there is a kind of building of sand castles where it's fun, where you just, you're not attached. It can get washed away or your brothers can come and step on it. I don't know if you've had that experience. I have. <laughs> sand castles, but inherently are um, impermanent. You can see the impermanence while you're building it. You can feel the impermanence while you're building it. So Buddha said it should be like that. It should be joyful. So play. Um, our sanctuary here and our first steps together at the Unitarian Church was founded with joy, wasn't it, Louise? Play and joy. There's so much joy in getting together and then in maintaining. And sometimes we see the joy, and sometimes we see, well, it must be joyful. <laughs> They're having me weed this lot. This must be joy. I'm sure it's joy. But it really is founded, the foundation of our sanctuary is deeply rooted in joy. And play. So play. And I looked up play because that's what we do. We look things up to get definitions. And um, there are some great resources about play because it's very important in Western philosophy also. So uh, Huizinga, Homo Luden, said he had a very elaborate definition of play. But this, to sum it up, he says, play is a free activity standing quite consciously outside ordinary life as being not serious, but at the same time, absorbing the player intensely and utterly. Doesn't that sound like Zen practice? Standing quite consciously outside ordinary life as being not serious, but at the same time, absorbing the player intensely and utterly. He goes on to say, it is an activity connected with no material interest and no profit can be gained by it. It proceeds within its own proper boundaries of time and space according to fixed rules and in an orderly manner. So that's play. And I, if you can access your memories of play, which were probably earlier this morning, because it's happening all the time. Um, do you remember like making up rules of the game as you go along and then changing them? And then, you know, I was once playing cards with my grandson who was then really tiny and he kept cheating. And it was like changing the rules. And I'm, you know, I'm very loving toward them and toward most people. But 
I looked up at his mother and she said, just let him win. <laughs> because I briefly forgot that <laughs> for children, the rules are this fluid, fluid uh, format. So another definition of play in development, uh, Russian psychologist Lev Vygotsky characterized children's play as activity that is, his quotes, desired by the child, always involves an imaginary situation, and always involves rules, which are in the minds of the players and may or may not be laid down in advance. <laughs> Isn't that nice? <laughs> You go into a game, you go into a playful situation, and during the situation, you realize what rules you think there are. And then you tell your friends what the rules are. <laughs> but this structure of rules is also inherent in our play. So I have one other that I thought was good. Um, this is Kenneth Rubin, Handbook of Child Psychology. Characterized play as behavior that is intrinsically motivated, focused on means rather than ends, distinct from exploratory behavior, non-literal, meaning it involves pretense, and free from externally imposed rules, and actively, not just passively, engaged in by the players. So somebody else summarized all of these. The five most agreed upon characteristics of human play. Play is self-chosen and self-directed, Play is intrinsically motivated, coming from within. Means are more valued than ends. Play is guided by mental rules, but the rules leave room for creativity. Play is, is imaginative. Play is conducted in an alert, active, but relatively non-stressed frame of mind. Sound very familiar, what we try to do, try to relax the mind and focus on the means of what we're doing. A little less concern about the ends. So remember that koan that we've talked about, and for those of you who are new, this, this will be your first time of hearing this very famous koan. And even, even a koan is a part of our play in Zen because a koan is a story, just means a story that we, um, we study, it's captured our attention, and then we get to play with it and decide what it means together. It doesn't have a fixed meaning, which is why it remains a story. And people then um, play with the meaning. Sometimes there's some kind of consensus about major aspects, but still it's play. So in this story, the Buddha was walking along with the congregation, all of us, and he was walking, one of the players was Indra, the king of gods. So all the gods like to hang out with Buddha too. And Indra, oh, Buddha stopped and said, this would be a good place to build a sanctuary. And Indra, the king of the gods, reached down and picked up a, a blade of grass and stuck it in the ground and said, the sanctuary is built. That's play. Can you imagine? That's somebody playing with the Buddha. And it says the Buddha smiled. I think the Buddha probably chuckled. <laughs> <laughs> this is play. This is what a sanctuary is founded on. And when I was kind of meditating on what the, 
what, uh, what Dogen's Zenji meant when he said, to build a sanctuary, you should have a mind of grass and stone. I thought, it all goes back to this blade of grass. You should have that mind. And what did that blade of grass think about? I'm the chosen one. <laughs> no, what did it think about? What's it like to have a mind of grass? What did it, what was it like for that blade of grass to be chosen? And not, not chosen in a special way, but just part of the sanctuary. What does it feel like to be part of the sanctuary? What does it feel like to be part of it? And maybe the blade of grass thought, hey, I'm just a blade of grass. I have no major responsibility here. <laughs> I just show up when I want. <laughs> but Indra said, you know, this blade of grass is the entire sanctuary. Each blade of grass is the entire sanctuary. So lately we've been going out to auspicious cloud west, a bunch of us, having a lot of fun out there. And you know, digging up the ground and then breaking all the electrical stuff and <laughs> fixing that and then cooking and sitting and washing windows and playing on this ground. And it too, Auspicious Cloud West, was founded entirely in a joyful spirit. It was a big piece of grassland. And then um, a few people, friends of ours from way back when, started planting trees, and now it's surrounded by trees. Those were all planted by the founders of Auspicious Cloud West, every one. And the ones in the middle, we met with a, a forester. I think Mary Carol is on here. We met with a, an arborist um, a few days ago who looked at all the trees, every one almost, except for the ones in the big forest. So we heard the history of these trees and the assessment and how we should continue to care for these trees. It was a beautiful walk around. And when Margaret Austin was herself alive, she died about, she died in 1992. Um, she just invited people to come and build buildings without thinking these are built to last. Come and build these buildings. And the building we call now the box, which is sitting on a, what do you call this part of the triangle? Come on, Neil. <laughs> that would be a vertex, but I don't know if it's sitting on the vertex. Yeah. Okay, it's sitting on the vertex axis of its being. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was just building a spirit of play. A bunch of young people got together and put that up, and they expected it to last for a summer. And that was in 1974 or something, and it's still there. And it's like they built a sandcastle. <laughs> they were playing with, they had the mind of, grass and stone and trees. And let's put this building up. And then the waves will come and wash it away and see you later. We're still taking care of that building. But it's going to be um, part of our heritage to our advantage to think about these things playfully, the way they thought about them. They didn't mean none of those people who were instrumental in founding this sanctuary or that sanctuary, which is now our sanctuary also, wanted it to feel like a big burden. It's like, we created this in play for you. Can you play with it? 
of course, you're also going to have to paint it and clean it and things like that. But can you do this in a spirit of joy? And you find joy in this activity. And finding joy is one of our instructions from the Buddha and all teachers and the Lotus Sutra because it is our birthright. Joy is us. And it's in there. And it's always in there. And it's an amazing ingredient of waking up. It's an essential ingredient. It's a micronutrient of waking up. I've been studying about micronutrients. Another talk. (laughs) (laughs) And I was, you know, thinking about this joy because when we're looking for joy as part of our birthright and our mental terrain, it's not like the whole landscape has to be joy. It could be a blade of grass and it's that powerful. So when we're having mental, when we look at our mental territory, it's complex. We're complex creatures. There's a lot going on, but there's always joy in there. And sometimes it's a little blade of grass when you look for it. Sometimes it's, you know, a large, large quantity. But when we look for it, it's a powerful thing to find that it's there and it has power. It's like play. It has power. So looking for joy and looking for the mental components of awakening is a means. It's not the end. It's just what we do. It's what practice is about. And it's why it always remains practice. It's always an active, active, actively engaged effort that we're making. So all of us here are part of this foundational generation of uh, establishing Zen in Texas Really important for you to to know that, even if it's just a blade of grass. Maybe I should have, let's make little grass pins. (laughs) (laughs) And distribute them freely. (laughs) Will you help me? (laughs) Um, And now I want to uh, talk about something that I've been involved with for a while, but I realize I haven't really talked about it in this way. Um, but another group of founders are the founders who uh, really largely brought Zen to this continent. And next year, on November uh, 2022, we'll make we'll have a, a, a very important celebration of Zen Shuji, which is the uh, Japanese Soto Zen Temple in LA, which is the first Soto Zen Temple in the continental United States. The second, founded about five years later, is Sokoji in San Francisco. And another one was founded in Hawaii before this, but Hawaii wasn't part of the United States. So its 100th anniversary was celebrated quite a while ago, actually. So because of Zen Shuji, we have Zen in this country. Because of Sokoji, we have Zen in this country. So especially along the West Coast, a lot of Japanese people came and got established and had beautiful farms. And so then the community there, just like us, said, we need a sanctuary. Let's invite a priest to come over and help us establish this sanctuary. 
So they got together, they raised money, they invited in a way to come over, and he founded the temple in Hawaii, he founded the temple in um, LA, and he founded the temple at Sokoji. Oh. And all three of those communities coalesced, had a little practice place, and started doing Zen practice. So in 1922, it started. And then in 1926, they did the same thing in San Francisco. And Sokoji started in a former Jewish synagogue. That's where they got their joyful start. There was a chess club. Isn't that funny? There was a chess club in the same building with the Zen Center. <laughs> um, in a, in a, a testament to these founders and their creativity, um, when World War II hit 20 years later, they figured out how to keep their temple going, even though the first people who were rounded up and put in prison camps were all the Buddhist priests, because Buddhism was considered a threat to America. So the first people who were rounded up and incarcerated were all the Buddhist priests that they could find. And then without their anything, they just, hey, it's like if they came in, oh, you're one, you're coming with us now. And then all the families that they could find were rounded up and taken to camps in the 40s. And many of those people who were children then, when I first started practicing, I met some of the adults who'd been incarcerated, but now I meet the children who were raised in prison camps. And they, as soon as the war allowed them to, they came back and got their temples going again. The way um, Zenshuji managed to keep their temple was to um, basically sell it to a Jewish group who then held it and owned it until they came back. And then they bought it back from the Jewish group because it had to be owned by somebody other than Japanese people. And so Koji had another way of dealing with it, but they all had to pay rent. And so somehow, even from within the prison camps, they were able to raise money, go out and get money to send it to maintain their temple. Many of them lost their homes. They lost their farms, uh, their businesses, yet they kept their temples going. Isn't that amazing? So that's in the 40s. And then they've continued to uh, keep Zenshuji going. Shortly after the war, um, Suzuki Roshi came to Sokoji to be their next head teacher. And then uh, after a few years, people started coming over to listen to him. Alan Watts was publicizing him and he was a great teacher. So after a while, um, they were doing so much Zazen that they decided to get another place, the San Francisco City Center. And then he was the head of both places for a while. And then after a while, uh, it felt like there had been a split, but there was never really a split. It's just that people got out of the habit of communicating. And Americans forgot, not you guys, a lot of Americans forgot our Japanese roots. And we forgot to honor our living Japanese ancestors. And people said things that are not true. They said things like, well, you know, Japanese people aren't, aren't really interested in the real Zen practice. Yes, I've heard people say that. 
But uh, Japanese people are um, the bodhisattvas who brought this practice for us. In Los Angeles, um, they had a, a head teacher whose name I forget, and Mayazumi Roshi came to assist him, just as at uh, San Francisco Zen Center, Katagiri Roshi came to assist Suzuki Roshi. Gobinchino came to assist Suzuki Roshi. They came because of the structure of Zen. These weren't like renegades coming over to establish Zen practice. They came because the structure existed. They fit in. And then we, American, non-Japanese raised people, started practicing with them. And now we've changed it to suit us, but that's where our roots are. So next November, there's going to be a five-day celebration at Zenshuji to honor the 100th anniversary. And it's going to take the form of a precepts receiving ceremony, a jukai. And it's called a jukai A because it's a big jukai. So many of you have received the precepts and it takes about an hour and a half, right? Oh, except for the six to eight months of sewing your rock suit. (laughs) (laughs) Or a year, or maybe sometimes two years. So receiving the precepts is a beautiful, intense ceremony in our our lineage. And people have beautiful blue rock suits, which are part of the ceremonial entrustment. Um, The ceremony that's going to take place at Zenshuji will take five days. And there are many, many, many... um, surprise elements to it <laughs> like going through dark tunnels through the kind of womb of the Tathagata things like that and this will be the first one they've had a couple others in this country because it's a big deal but the um, this will be the first one where all the people involved are American teachers many of them are Japanese American but all the teachers will be Japanese it will be American based so Tenshin Roshi, Reb Anderson will be one of the teachers. I have a role, and um, Shohaka Okamura. But our, the main leader will be Akiba Sokan. And I know a lot of you don't know these names, but Akiba Sokan is a really important sweetheart, and he's been here. So he will be the main teacher. And we had to actually um, make a big effort to make sure, you know, invite him to take this role because the default was to, well, let's go to AHG and get a really important teacher from Japan and they'll take that role. But no, it's going to be American teachers and all the teachers from all the monasteries around will be part of this ceremony. And Reb will be one of the precept instructors. And it is a way of, um, showing our deep appreciation and deep understanding of the importance of Zen Shuji to go there. And they're really looking forward to it. And because they have only recently been um, aware of how vast their influence has spread across the whole country, all of us with our groups are little sprouts coming off of Zen Shuji and Soboji. So for me, it's extremely beautiful. And um, there's going to be a limit of 100 people who can be in the ceremony. And um, I'm very happy because it turns out we in the the International Center that I'm part of also, 
we've sent out these invitations and all the temples are responding. So they're, they're, they're signing up to come and be in this ceremony. So I hope that a few of us want to do that. And I hope that we understand the, or, you know, get a taste for how rooted this is in play, how rooted this is in actual joy and that we can um, share some of our joyfulness and practice here at Zenshuji with everybody there. And, and the food will be really good. <laughs> One of the reasons I like going to Zenshuji for meetings, the food is phenomenally good. Their members cook delicacies from Japan and um, it's really, really, really good. But they provide American quantities, which are shocking. <laughs> Here, have some sushi. <laughs> Okay, so just to return, honoring founders, honoring our founders, our sanctuary here, our blade of grass sanctuary, honoring the founders at Zenshuji, honoring uh, Shakyamuni Buddha, and honoring all of you. Just take it in a little bit, your foundational status. Sewing teacher. <laughs> Thank you very much.